Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here today, uh, joined by a special guest, Dr. Brian Regal. Um, Dr. Regal, thank you so much for coming on the show here today with us. My pleasure. So uh, for listeners who don't know, Dr. Regal is an American historian of science, a skeptic, and a writer, associate professor of the history of science at Keene University in New Jersey. Um, he is probably... Uh, most well known to listeners of this show potentially because of his appearance on um, or his the discussion of his work on Monster Talk um, about the Jersey Devil, um, which I hope we'll get into here a little bit today, um, but has also written many books, um, including recently The Secret History of the Jersey Devil, uh, How Quakers, Hucksters and Benjamin Franklin Created a Monster. And then, of course, Searching for Sasquatch, Crackpots, Eggheads and Cryptozoology. Um, Dr. Regal, it is, like I said, such a pleasure to have you on the show. I have been, um, I've been a follower of you on Twitter for some time now. Um, and always kind of like, oh, it'd be awesome to have that guy on the show. And then I'm always like, no, I won't ask, but I'm happy it finally happened here. I'm happy I finally asked. Um, how are you doing today? Doing good. It's, it's about a thousand degrees here in New Jersey. <laughs> the sun is just going down and it's, so that means it's dropped down to about 900 degrees. <laughs> that okay. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, it was a, uh, oh my goodness, it's such a scorcher here today. It's been, uh, it's been pretty terrible. So, you know, one thing I guess initially that listeners, the, so whenever we have experts or kind of subject matter experts or people who are working in a, um, a specific field of interest for the show, the first thing we always like to ask or kind of a, a thing that I like to get into a little bit is, what made you want to study this in the first place? Uh, well, I, um, I'm, I, I was one of those weird kids who was into history, uh, you know, all the way back. And um, the problem I had was very few people in, in my world, except for my, my parents, thought I was smart enough to, well, thought I was smart. I had, uh, I went to Catholic grammar school and I had a, in the, in the sixth grade, I had a nun, Sister Louise, who was my nemesis in, in grammar school, uh, who called me brain damaged in class in front of my classmates and then, then, then told me I was the Antichrist. So um, I, I, I came out of a background that, you know, where no one were, was an academic. You know, my, my father was a construction worker. My mother was a waitress. Uh, I, I grew up in, uh, in Newark, New Jersey, in a, in a neighborhood called the Ironbound. And then um, in 68, after the riots, uh, we moved across the river to Kearney. And so there, there was no one in, that I knew uh, in my world who did anything uh, even remotely scholarly. You know, to me, uh, writers were these sort of celestial beings who you would see on the little black and white TV on the Merv Griffin show or, well, I really just aged myself right there by the <laughs> Merv Griffin show. Uh, but, um, you know, they, they, no one, I mean, I didn't know anybody who knew anyone who knew anyone who knew anyone who knew a writer or a scholar mm. or anything. Um, <clears throat> the, I, I had one or two uh, cousins who went to community college uh, but that was it, you know, so I had no way, I, I had no idea how to go about doing this thing I wanted to do. And as I, you know, made my way through grammar school, then through high school, uh, <clears throat> I, there, there were very few people in my world who thought, you know, who thought I had any sort of chance to do this. 
I mean, I was told by my high school guidance counselor in, in my sophomore year that when I told her I wanted to go to college and be a historian, she said, well, kids like you don't go to college. Uh, so that, yeah, that's, you know, just the sort of thing you want as a counselor. You want. Who's going to tell the Antichrist he can't go to college? What is, you, come on, right? <laughs> so, so what I decided, you know, I, I, I had to get out. I wanted to get out. All, all I thought uh, for most of my childhood was how do I get out of this? Mm. So I decided to join the army. Uh, you know, I figured I'll, 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 I'll go off and pursue the life of a adventurer on Uncle Sam's dime. And, uh, you know, uh, that's what I did. And, uh, but as time went by, I started having these thoughts, you know, maybe I could really do this thing. Uh, you know, I read, I, I, when uh, I was, uh, when I was in the service, I was, uh, in the armored cavalry, I was a tank driver and, um, and when people meet me today, nobody ever believes me when I tell them that I have to show them pictures. But um, I, I had uh, I, I was considered like the egghead uh, in in my battalion because I actually took books with me on on field exercises, and I had a because I didn't want to get yelled at because they would yell at you if you brought books with you because you weren't paying attention to what you were supposed to be doing. And so I took an old fifty caliber machine gun uh, ammunition can and washed it out and then made it into my little sort of traveling library. And so I could keep it in the bustle rack of the tank and no one would say anything because it was just a, you know, an ammunition can. Uh, and so I, I started having these thoughts, like maybe I could do this, but again, I, I really just had no idea how to go about doing it. And then eventually I left the service and I, I started trying to build a career as a commercial artist. I, I put myself when I eventually did go to college, I put myself through school as a commercial artist here in, in New Jersey and, and North Jersey and New York. And uh, originally I was a industrial design major. Okay. Yeah. Well, I had, I had, I had sweet talked my way into a job at AT&T as a phone designer, a job I absolutely no training in, but I could draw. And so I could draw phones and, uh, you know, uh, right after I got out of the service, I, I figured I should, I should get some, some uh, art training. And so I spent a year at the Kubert School of Cartoon uh, and, and Graphic Design in New Jersey, in Dover. And then after that, I went up to, I, I packed up all my belongings into my car and I drove to Providence <clears throat> and uh, enrolled in the Rhode Island School of Design and got us, wound up with a certificate in scientific and technical illustration. So I figured, well, that, that'll be my, you know, that's going to be my career, and I'll just sort of keep this history stuff as a, a, a sort of secret uh, pastime. Uh, and so I used the, the work I did at RISD to, to, like I said, to sort of con my way into a job at AT&T. And they said, well, look, you, you know, you can be a contract worker, but you're never going to get a permanent job unless you have a college degree. And so uh, I decided to go to school as an industrial design major because I figured that would help. And then a year after I got the job at AT&T, they went, this was in the mid, uh, mid to late 80s, uh, they went through a huge downsizing. And uh, I got fired because, you know, first, last hired, first fired. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I had to do something. And so I decided, well, maybe this is the time to pursue this thing. So I changed my major to history. And, uh, you know, that I, I was extremely lucky 
to have a few faculty members who sort of took an interest in what I was doing and uh, really sort of helped me along. And, you know, so finally now I, ha I knew people who knew how to go about doing this thing. And that when I said I wanted to be a historian, they didn't just laugh at me. They actually helped me. So I, I, I managed to, to, you know, I did okay uh, and uh, went to graduate school. And, you know, unlike, as you know, uh, a graduate school is, is different from undergraduate because whereas an undergraduate, you can kind of, your ideas can kind of float around and you can think about this and you can think about that. But once you get into graduate school, you have to get really focused on what it is you're doing. And so my initial idea, I, mean, I was always interested in science, and, uh, but my initial idea was to do medieval science, mm. history of science, you know, in the Middle Ages and in, in North Africa and the history of Islamic science. And then they informed me about the dozen languages I would have to learn how to read. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my language skills were never really my forte. And, you know, I, I, I sort of struggled with, uh, you know, I, 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 can, I can read a number of languages now. And, and if, I, if, if I get immersed in it enough, I can speak a couple. Uh, but that, I, I knew I would never be able to pass that part of the entrance exams to go to graduate school if I had to do that. And so someone suggested to me, well, you can do modern history of science. And so instead of a dozen languages, you'll only have to do like three or four. Uh, and so I said, okay, well, that's for me. And, uh, you know, that's, I, I got into that and I was extremely lucky that I studied with a guy named David Cohn, uh, who was a world-renowned Darwin scholar. And I was really interested in evolution, as I still am, and I've written a lot about it. And uh, when I did my doctoral dissertation, I uh, worked on this guy named Henry Fairfield Osborne, who was the longtime president of the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Really fascinating, in some ways, confounding figure who sort of, he was in the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, who somehow managed to combine a pro-evolution we should teach children evolution in school. Evolution is good for the country attitude with, uh, with Christian fundamentalism uh, mm -hmm. in a way that's virtually unheard of today. Uh, you know, because today the, the whole science, evolution, religion debate is often framed in a very black and white kind of way. You know, if you, if you believe in religion, you, you know, you believe in God and you hate science. If you believe in science, you hate God. Uh, which is a really sort of convoluted vision of what is really going on. And so I found this guy really fascinating. And in, when I was writing my dissertation, which became my first book, uh, I, I kept coming across monstrous creatures and sort of weird fringe science, and I got really interested in it. I, I mean, I had been interested in it all along, uh, as with many people of my generation, and I can't believe I just said people of my generation – uh, we were enthralled by Leonard Nimoy and In Search Of. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, you, you, you almost can't speak to anybody of a certain age who's interested, interested in this sort of material who will not say, you know, uh, I was really influenced by watching that show. Uh, and so I thought, you know, now that, I, now that I'm Dr. Bry uh, and I have this first book, I got to come up with a second book. And I was approached by ABC Clio, the publishers, ABC Clio. And they said, you know, we, we would love to do a book on sort of a general public book on 
controversies in human evolution. And I said, okay, well, I'm doing it. That's, that's my job. Just send me the contract now. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and that's that. And so that was my second book, uh, the, you know, the human evolution, a guide to the debates and which came out in 2003, I think, if I'm, rem- if I'm remembering correctly. And they gave me a lot of free space to approach this topic basically any way I wanted. And so I started doing these uh, chapters on sort of monsters and, and weird fringe ideas about human evolution and Christian fundamentalism or religious fundamentalism in general. Uh, and so that I just kept going deeper and deeper. And at one point, I thought I should put in something about Grover Krantz, who was the one of the few mainstream academically trained scientists who thought Bigfoot was real. Mm-hmm. And so I did a little bit on him, and then the book came out. And uh, so I decided, you know, this, this guy is really interesting, and I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the whole world of cryptozoology. Not that I believe in any of these things. Um, but I'm fascinated by the people involved. One of the, I'm up to about, I think, seven books now. Um, But one of the things, sort of the themes that runs through all my writing, whether books or articles or op-ed pieces or whatever, I'm fascinated by the relationship between uh, professional academic scientists and amateur investigators. Mm Mm-hmm. And cryptozoology is just a goldmine of that kind of idea. And so I, I kept looking into it. And the more I looked into it, the more uh, interested I got. And then uh, I discovered that uh, Grover Krantz had died in like 2002 or three, I think. And so I thought, well, that's great. Just as I'm deciding to do this project, this guy who I want to make the center of the, of the thing, he, he goes ahead and dies. But then I found out that his estate left all of his papers and his correspondence and his private library and, you know, all that stuff to the Smithsonian. And it went into the National Anthropological Archive, uh, which is, uh, you know, which is a a division of the Smithsonian. And it was now available for people to look at. Right. And and for listeners who don't know, um, also his skeleton and his dog skeleton. Yes. Famously, Um. the... his his skeleton uh, of of himself and his dog Clyde, yeah, <laughs> really interesting relationship between this guy and his dog, and um, so he left it to the Smithsonian and, and they to, to to mount them together and they went and did it, which is kind of cool. Oh, super cool. Yeah. Anyway, so I went down there and I looked at this huge collection of stuff, and um, so you know this is what historians do: we we look for the paperwork. Uh, we look for the letters and the diaries and the correspondence and the marginalia and all that stuff. And it just came spilling out. And I said, well, this is it. This, uh, this is going to make a great book. And in addition to the, within the Krantz papers, because Krantz was sort of a pivotal figure in that whole world, there is a huge amount of correspondence from other people. Uh, from other cryptozoology people. And then it turns out that the Smithsonian had tons of stuff about the Minnesota Iceman and, you know, some other famous uh, cryptozoological creatures. And so I spent a couple of years just going through this material. And the next thing I know, I had a, you know, I had a book. And so that became Searching for Sasquatch. 
um, and which was not my title. The title I wanted was Crackpots and Eggheads. <laughs> the, the the big compromise, they said, well, we'll make that the, the sort of subtitle. <laughs> and they, they came up with Searching for Sasquatch. And I said, you know, it's too much like that show, that horrible, awful, terrible show. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, no, there'll be, uh, you know, so there's, there's a certain point where I just said, okay, well, whatever, just go with that. And that was it. And uh, so I, I have since gotten tons of hate mail because of the, you know, my, the, the title of that. Uh, well, you're, you're insulting cryptozoologists by calling it crackpots and eggheads. And I said, look, that really wasn't my title. I got those words, those phrases from the cryptozoologists themselves. From sure. guys like Krantz and Rennie DeHinden and John Green and all these other people, I said, you know, I, I've often told the story where I, when I was looking through this, this huge volume of, of material, I came across these phrases, uh, crackpots and eggheads. And the first time I saw it, I, I, I was like, jackpot, <laughs> right there. And so, uh, you know, the rest is history. Oh, my goodness. That is, uh, man, it is, it is very, for, so first off, it is. It is fascinating and hilarious to me sometimes the as someone who's also kind of a I don't know more of like I guess so I I can't claim to be a historian by any means but you know as someone who at least on the show we try to look at these um these fields and for me at least my particular interest is in the UFO field and how that field has kind of interacted and intersected with you know mainstream science and also with sort of now today and also in its history with the mainstream like the military community and the Senate and Congress and everything else. It's kind of a very interesting case, um, case study. But when you, when you read into, or you read some of these memos from people who are, you know, kind of the big believers or proponents and read the ways that they describe their fellow believers, you're kind of like, man, I am not going hard enough. You know, like I am being way too nice. <laughs> sure. Sure. And, and you're, you're absolutely right. The, you know, they, they, you know, it's like it's like the old joke about the mafia. They only kill their own. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I thought, uh, you know, and I still feel, and, and you know, I shouldn't say that uh, every um, uh, monster aficionado or cryptozoologist uh, hates my work. I've gotten plenty of incredibly complimentary uh, contacts where people said, you know, I read your book. I thought it was going to be horrible, but it was really terrific. And, you know, I, 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 I am not anti-cryptozoology, mm-hmm. uh, and I simply took the the approach that I was trained to take. You look through the material, and you let the evidence direct you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had no preconceived idea of what I wanted to wind up arguing uh, with this book or any of my books, and I just, that's how historians work. We start wading through the material. And it will begin to kind of push you one way or another. And I, I thought I was very, you know, sympathetic to this whole world. I mean, the people like cryptozoology or, or, or ufologists or any of these kind of fringy uh, paranormal ghost hunter stuff, they're, they're, it's easy to make fun of them. It's like shooting fish in a barrel sometimes. Mm. Um, it's, it's much more difficult to see the value of what they're doing. Now, I don't believe in UFOs. I don't believe in Bigfoot. Uh, I don't believe in the Jersey devil. 
you know, I, I give a lot of public talks. I haven't done it in a while because of what's going on, uh, but I've given dozens and dozens of public talks over the years at libraries and, you know, civics groups and things uh, about monsters and paranormal material. And I always start off by saying, look, you know, for those of you in the audience who came here wanting, wanting me or expecting me to tell you that Bigfoot is real or the Jersey Devil is real or UFOs are real, I, I'm really going to disappoint you. Uh, because I'm going to tell you the opposite, because there's no evidence for any of this. Uh, and so, you know, the, but just because there's no such thing as Bigfoot doesn't mean we, can learn, we can't learn something from this field. Mm-hmm. That's because there's no such thing, uh, or, or at least there's, there's no evidence that UFOs have ever come to Earth. That still doesn't mean we can't learn something from all of this. Uh, and so that's the approach I always take. I'm not... I, I, I'm not really trying to disprove, you know, the Wall Street Journal once called me a debunker. And I said, I'm not a debunker. Mm-hmm. I don't go out to try to disprove anything. I'm a historian. I'm out there to tell the story. And I tell the story whichever way the story goes. And if the story goes in a direction that makes you feel good, well, that's great. Uh, and if it, if it goes in a direction that pisses you off because, you know, this is your thing that you believe so much in, uh, I'm sorry, it's not my fault. Uh, you know, I'm just telling you what's going on. The, it's one of the main reasons that I I really wanted to have you on the show is because your approach is is something that I try to kind of I try to emulate in some ways because the, similarly to you, right? The kind of the analogy that I make to people is if you know, just you can be uh, you can be an atheist, Catholic, whatever. But just because you believe a certain set of things doesn't mean that there isn't value in studying someone else's set of beliefs, right? So if you're an atheist, you can't, you know, you might think that God doesn't exist, but you can't deny that the structures and belief in God itself, that that hasn't had a tremendous effect on the world around us. Sure. Right. At at Kane, we have this, as many, as most universities and colleges do. We have uh, a, a basic introductory history course. It's part mm-hmm. of the education program that everybody has to take, no matter what your major is. <clears throat> part of your GE requirement is to take uh, HIST 1062, Worlds of History. And I spend basically the first half of the semester, every semester, because we run about a million sections, sections of this, and I teach two of them each semester, uh, I, I talk about uh, religious history. Mm-hmm. I talk about the, you know, the ancient world, uh, Egyptian religion, uh, the, the foundations of, of Judaism and Christianity and Islam and the origins of Hinduism and Buddhism. And I don't teach it because I'm trying to convert students to religion. It's because, as you said, these things have had such a huge impact on right. the development of human history that you need to understand it. We also teach a course, again, that many, in, in the way that many colleges and universities do on the, on the Nazis. Uh, and it's, it's weirdly, hugely popular. It always fills, which I'm not sure, you know, what that means. But um, it's not because we want students to become Nazis. It's because it's an important thing that you should know about uh, in order to understand the world. Right. No, absolutely. And, you know, the one thing that's come up a lot is, you know, I think before kind of before coronavirus, but also before, let's say, the last like couple of years of American life, I think when people would ask me, you know, well, why are you interested in 
Why are you interested? Like I always try to tell people when I, when I'm at conventions for my day job or talking to other people who are, you know, kind of academically trained, you know, they'll ask me, well, why are you even wasting your time with UFO people? And the answer I always give is because knowing why someone believes in something that's not scientifically based, that, that kind of fits outside of that norm is important because it means they probably believe in all kinds of other stuff that isn't true. You know, like that there's kind of co-occurrence there. And so one of the things that you've probably noticed as well is that people don't just, if, if if someone believes in Bigfoot, for example, they don't just believe in Bigfoot. There's no (laughs) probably believe in UFOs and you know, the, the, there's, there's this kind of, uh, connection to things uh right now i'm the the book i'm working on right now uh is on the various myths and legends about who you know in quotations really discovered america Mm -hmm. and it's really interesting because i'm attracted to this because it's full of these sort of fringy people uh you know the the kind of uh hyper-focused uh, in some cases, sad, lonely people pursuing <laughs> these peculiar ideas. And what you notice about this is that it's, it's, there's always a kind of suite of beliefs that not every single person latches onto, but a lot of people do. And so if you're looking at these sort of non-Columbian uh, ideas about who discovered America, you'll find white supremacy in there. Mm-hmm. You'll find, uh, you know, anti-government feeling in there. You'll find, uh, you know, if, if you if you start looking at people like anti-vaxxers and anti-men, now we have, you know, just when you thought anti-vaxxers were the biggest <laughs> in, in, uh, in the country, along come the anti-maskers. Uh, and if you sort of scratch that surface a little bit, and, uh, and again, not every single person is like this. Uh, but if you start scratching that surface, you'll find conspiracy theorists and, mm. you know, QAnon believers and anti-government types and racists and misogynists. And, you know, for, for, for a disturbing number of these, these believers, the, the farther you go, the darker and the more rotted uh, these belief systems become. Uh, and so while not every person who believes in Bigfoot is a, you know, has got a swastika hanging in their bedroom. Um, there are certain threads which connect a lot of these things together. Yeah. It's one of those, it's, you know, within, within UFO world right now, there's a lot of that going around, which hasn't exactly been great. Um, and I think for the, I think for a lot of people, it's sort of a, I don't know if it's a shock necessarily, but you know, like a show like ancient aliens, for example, right. Which is based on all these ideas that are, sort of on their face, you know, it's like a, it's like a Google search away. They're like, Oh my God, this is kind of racist. Um, yeah, not no, kind of. no, <laughs> right. We, you know, like it's, it's like a, it's, it's sort of like, um, the way I was explaining it the other day to somebody was it's sort of, it's not, it's not like assertively racist in the sense that like you think, or someone would think that is wrong to say, or that's something that's like, I would never do that. I would never say that. I would never do something that terrible. It's kind of like a passive sort of racism that people are just like, oh yeah, you know, if you, when you explain it like that, it's super, it is super racist and that probably shouldn't be on TV anymore. The, I think the challenge that at least I know I've run into and I'm sure you have too, is 
when you start, like how, how you present that seems to be really important, you know? So if you just sort of present that thing, or if you're just kind of, you know, I mean, I, I am guilty of this all the time. Um, just kind of yelling at people on Twitter and being like, that's stupid. Like, don't do that. Right. That is soup. That's so ineffective. So I wonder kind of in your career so far, or when you teach these courses and things, or even in writing the books and speaking to believers, don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, I think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) How do you broach, like, how do you breach that subject with them that like this, you know, what if this isn't real? Because I I have yet, to, you know, I've had some of those conversations and they've, they usually go better than you kind of expect, I guess. But there's always, for every 10 of them you have, there's always one that kind of goes off the rails and is like, well, you're, you know, that's not true. And, you know, you're talking like the, the reptilians aren't really there. You know, and it's like, oh my God, dude. Right. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. I mean, I've, uh. I, I've done lots of public speaking gigs and I, I've been lucky in that I've had people ask sort of strange questions. And mm-hmm. you know, like and when I, when I, when I do the, when I get asked to do the Jersey devil talk, uh, my Jersey devil talk, I don't think I've ever done that where at the end of the, uh, the presentation, this sort of ritual begins and it happens every time. And I, you know, I've, okay, no more, you know, thanks for all your questions. Thanks for coming. And people applaud and, and all that. And then you, you get this little line of people who come up and say, you know, shake my, want to shake my hand say, I really enjoyed that. It's really, you know, I never knew that aspect of this or that. Uh, and inevitably I always get at least one person who will come up and say, dude, yeah, that's all. This was really cool and all, but you know, the Jersey devil's real. Cause I saw it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, every single time once, once I had this 80 year old woman, <laughs> tiny little, you know, lady on a cane uh, came up to me and said, you know, young man, uh, uh, I really enjoyed your talk. Thanks for coming. But I know the Jersey devil's real because I saw it in my yard once. And, you know, so, so now what do I do? Do I, you know, intellectually bludgeon an 80 year old and tell her she's, you know, <laughs> You're crazy, Granny. There's no. I just say, "Oh, well, that's nice." You know, thank you. Cool. Uh, you know, thanks for coming. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so, but I've never had anyone really get too uh, angry. I, I, I guess you know, I, I, my white male privilege um, sort of protects me a little bit from that. If I was a, mm-hmm. you know, a, if I was a female or if I was a person of color doing this. I'm sure the reaction would be different. Mm-hmm, absolutely. 
but uh, you know, so I, you know, I've I've had people write to me and say awful things. I've had people send me tweets and you know call me all sorts of names. Uh, in fact, I I've taken to keeping a list of all the stuff <laughs> I've been called online. Oh, we we have that we have our list too. Go go. You give give me your worst one, and I'll give you my worst one. Okay, let's see. I don't know if you can hear the paper. Uh... <laughs> I can. We we're, we're getting. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll, I'll give you. Uh, I don't know if I'll, what kind of language I can use. Oh, any kind. Go ahead. Have at it. I was some of the more interesting ones. I was called a PhD in in uh, used car salesmanship. Uh, <laughs> I was called Professor Dope. Oh, nice. Which yeah, which is kind of you know uh, I'm sure they didn't mean to be, but yeah. Uh, okay, sure. You sound like a Batman villain, kind of badass. That's cool. Yeah. A, a, a common elitist leftist douche. That's a common one. <laughs> uh, well-educated moron, a fake doctor, Professor Bumptious. I like that one because it's such an adorable word. Bumptious. That's interesting. Yeah, that's good. Uh, liberal doofus, a commie American hater. Sh- oh, shill for big pharma. And that, that's another. That's another <laughs> one. <laughs> Um, let's see where else, uh, uh, America hater. America hater. <laughs> yeah, I, I was once called a, a typical, Ameri- uh, I'm sorry, typical socialist professor, and I don't normally respond. Uh, I mean, I've had, I've had interesting conversations with people who said, I really disagree, you, you know, you don't know, let me explain to you, that is, explain to me how I'm wrong, uh, and, and I'll, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll spar with people if they have a good conversation. But the minute you start, you know, cursing me, that we're, we're done. I'm not going to stand for that. Uh, so a guy called me a typical uh, socialist professor. And I, I wrote back to him. I said, excuse me, sir, you're, you're wrong. Uh, I am not a typical socialist professor. I'm an outstanding socialist professor. <laughs> so that was, that was kind of fun. There you go. The most puzzling, a guy called me Pontius Pilate once. That is a wow. That's a hell of an accusation, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, maybe he was talking to your grade school teacher. I don't know the nun or whatever. Just Louise, and yeah. So I didn't, I, I didn't actually know before you said it what bumptious meant, but now, so self-assertive or proud to an irritating degree. That yeah, it's sort of, a, it's sort of an archaic expression. <laughs> I was gonna. So first off, that is uh, my if I if my wife finds out about that word, I'm done for. Right. Um. But that's hilarious. That's like such a, it's like Sherlock Holmes wrote to you. you know I mean? Professor Moriarty is upset yeah. with me for once again thwarting his plans. Oh my God. Oh, that's a good list though, man. So, so we had on, we did the only episode. So we have, we have a lot of episodes where we touch on stuff that people don't like, you know, the UFO stuff is particularly kind of heated, I think. Um, because I don't know why just it is. And I guess, cause I'm the most involved in it. But we had one where we we did a series on Morgellons disease or we did an episode on Morgellons and in the comments for that one, when it went up on YouTube and normally our our episodes don't really go on YouTube. So this was like a test to see how it would go over. Someone in the comments wrote, get to the point fat boy. And that has been like my top. um, It's like the best. It's it is so cutting. And so, you know, like, oh, my God. Yeah. Anyways, it's a good band name. It's a great, it's a great band name, right? Get to the point, fat boy. It, if this podcast ever doesn't go anywhere, that's the next plan. Right. Uh-huh. So the, um, <laughs> the, the, the sort of right wing trolls aren't very good at much, but they come up with great band names. 
Oh my god, it's um it's it's pretty intense. Have you so have you ever this this is kind of something that I think we don't I know at least in when we do episodes, we try to really talk about kind of the humans and the people who are being negatively affected by some of this stuff, right? And I think in the Bigfoot world, it's or kind of in the cryptozoology world generally, although you have people who are like spending a lot of money to go out there and hunt for Bigfoot and stuff. I don't know if that's necessarily it's not besides it being kind of a gateway to other trains of thought that are probably not helpful, like other conspiracy theories or even, you know, darker things like, um, you know, anti-medical beliefs or racism or whatever. I'm not sure that there's really like a con, a con man situation going on. There is some, right? Like you think about like Melba Ketchum saying, you know, subscribe to my journal and we're going to publish our results. And then, you know, nothing. Right. Right. But in, but it, one question we've often kind of, we've kind of struggled with is this question of, is it ethical at all to, to propagate ideas like this? And in some ways it's like, it's just folklore, right? Like Bigfoot is modern folklore. UFOs are modern folklore. And there's a way that you can look at it that way. But on the other hand, on the other hand though, I wonder, or I think about kind of, you know, we struggle with using science ethically and trying to be, you know, sustainable, but also accessible to the public and everything else and all that other stuff, regardless of how successful we've actually been with that. But I wonder though, with these fields like this, like it's, it's really easy, like you said, to just kind of scoff at these people and say, this is all stupid. We shouldn't believe any of it. But in my mind, at least you're kind of, when I talk to them, the thing I always think about is, you know, this is somebody's, this is someone's mom, right? This is someone's son, someone's daughter, someone's, someone's husband or wife, right? Like these are real people who believe these things and, the, you know, in my mind, it, it, it's almost as if in some of these cases, they're, I don't know, like, is it ethical to let them be lied to or is it ethical to, and lied is hard with some of these things, but you know what I mean? Like those ethical questions around that, I guess, kind of what's your take on that or what's your view on that? Well, I guess in the, the grand scheme of things, uh, you know, if we put all this sort of, for lack of a better expression, fringe thought um, on, a, on a scale Cryptozoology is probably at the oh, the less mm-hmm. dangerous end of that scale. Uh, I don't, you know, there there are some people out there who do this just to sell books and videos and things, as you said. Um, but I don't really see uh, belief in cryptozoology or belief in some of these monsters as as a as problematic. Mm-hmm. Say anti-vaccination uh, or QAnon conspiracy belief. Uh, I, I think it has the least amount of potential for harm. Uh, there are some good things about cryptozoology. Again, I, I, I'm, I'm not anti-cryptozoology. Uh, people ask me all the time, should I, you know, do you tell people not to go out and look for, for the Jersey Devil? And I say, no, I don't. I don't say don't do it. Uh, because if you know anything about the history of science, if you look, uh, look back to the, the, the ancient world, all of our modern mainstream sciences like biology and geology and, and physics, they all start off as what we might think today is kind of fringe thought. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there's a long, a long history of, of scientists and philosophers trying to grapple 
with the question of monsters. What are monsters? Are they real? Are they fake? If they're real, how do they fit into the wider scheme of biological diversity? Uh, if they're fake, what does that tell us about human belief systems? And, you know, so all the way back to Aristotle and Pliny and Lucretius and all those guys, they all thought monsters were worth uh, studying. And as a result of that attempt to work out the nature of monstrous creatures, they invent biology, they mm-hmm. invent ornithology, they invent, you know, zoology. Uh, and so there is a, a benefit to this. If people are going out there, if, if believing in Bigfoot or liking to read books about Bigfoot gets somebody to start to investigate actual biology and zoology, it, it, it's a win-win situation. Uh, you know, when I, as I said before, when I was a kid, uh, watching In Search Of. Uh, I didn't think Bigfoot was real, but it led me to look at other areas of knowledge and epistemology. And, you know, I, I wound up becoming a historian because of that. Mm-hmm. And so there there are benefits to it uh, because, you know, you, you it can lead you to searching and and discovering new and interesting things, not all of which are always bad. Uh, then you go to the other end of the scale where you get the anti-vaxxers and the, the flat earthers and the we never went to the moon people. Uh, and you can start sort of veering into some of these more dangerous areas. Uh, you know, if, if, you believe, uh, if you believe that you shouldn't get your kids vaccinated because there's some sort of grand conspiracy to put, you know, mind-controlling drugs into a vaccination – you're one step away from believing in some really awful things. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that can be dangerous. Uh, if you uh, imbibe a little too much of this ancient alien stuff, which, uh, you know, has this inherent, uh, at least the way that it's, it's often put forward, has this inherent anti, anti almost anti-human approach that, the idea that people of color in the ancient world could not possibly have figured out how to build pyramids or how to build uh, uh, build roads or whatever, uh, that it had to have been, you know, lost white races or uh, uh, vaguely white aliens who come to the earth and, and humans are too dumb you know, these, these ancient people, often dark-skinned people, needed this kind of intergalactic help to figure out how to make a wheel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you embrace that, then it's, it, it's not that far of a stretch to then start thinking, well, maybe even today uh, people of color aren't as good as non-people of color and maybe they shouldn't have the same rights and privileges as anybody else. And then, you know, those dominoes start going over and we wind up where we are today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it's funny that I, I completely agree with you there. The thing we always try to say is, or I guess, so for me, at least looking at this subject or looking at all these subjects, I almost see kind of a failing of the scientific community or the academic community to reach out to people, you know, because I'm, I'm very much so like you growing up in, Kind of the, you know, I grew up in Staten Island, you grew up in Newark, in that same kind of area of of the world, 
I also grew up. I I did not meet like the only probably person I met with a PhD was my, uh, you know, the, the only person who was involved in science that I had met was probably my pediatrician. You know, there wasn't right. There wasn't like a scientist to look up to and be like, well, how did how did you go to school? You know, like what did you do? Um, you know, so I almost wonder if it's not the fact that a lot of these people that are into this stuff have just never met a scientist. They've never met a historian. They've never met a philosopher of science. They've never spoken about this stuff in a way to people where they, you know, it's not that they don't want to learn. Like, I think if you're interested in cryptozoology or you're interested in, in UFOs or whatever, that's not that far off from an interest in just plain zoology, right? Or an interest just in, in aerospace engineering or whatever. Right. Um, so it's kind of, you know, for me at least, it feels like a lot, and that's why we do the show, frankly, it feels a lot like these communities are just kind of left out, and it's, if they were given, if they were given the tools to understand and put these questions in a more, in a, in a more certain framework for themselves, right? If they had the tools to know, hey, this guy telling me that, you know, quantum entanglement explains time travel, and that's how aliens have been going back and forth to Mars or whatever, like you give that guy a 30 minute talk on quantum mechanics and he's going to be like, Oh, that would, that other guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But that's, that's at least a hope, right? It doesn't always happen that way. Um, but you know, so I, I, I really like, I, I don't know for me, that's kind of the feeling I always get. And I think giving talks and, and getting out there and having people like yourself, skeptics and, and historians and scientists and philosophers and just people thinking about this stuff seriously getting them out there in front of the public and, and letting the public ask questions and talking about the stuff that you're doing. I think it's just so important. And, you know, I hope, um, I don't know. I hope, I hope we see more of it. Although now everyone's staying home because of COVID. Um, but maybe someday we'll all be able to go back out there again. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, the thing is there are lots of scholars out there. There are lots of scientists or lots of historians, lots of archeologists, uh, literary people out there hammering away at this uh, and, you know, doing their best to try to spread this information. But part of the issue is that sort of, uh, for lack of a better expression, mainstream media, uh, which is a term which has, you know, come under fire. Uh, but <laughs> it's, it's difficult. For example, I've been on a couple of TV series about monsters and the last one I did, uh, which was called Mythical Beasts, I think it was called Mythical Beasts, for the Science Channel, uh, they decided to have a panel because it was coming, this was a couple years ago, uh, they decided to have a, a because it, as a way of debuting the series, they somehow managed to get a space for a panel at the Comic-Con in New York. And they said, oh, okay, well, you, you, you live right across the river in New Jersey. Do you want to be on the panel for Comic-Con? And I said, uh, yeah. And so, uh, so we did this thing. It was a lot of fun. And uh, you, you, for the listeners out there, if you want to see it, it's on, you can go to my webpage and, and, and the recording is there. But when the, when the panel was over, we, had a, we wound up having a standing room only uh, uh, crowd which was interesting given the fact that across the hall at the very same time, there was a Harry Potter panel going on. And so, uh, <coughs> excuse me. So we had a good crowd and it went really well and people asked good questions and all that. And when it was over, um, 
uh, a guy who was one of the producers on the series, a producer for the Science Channel, came up to me and said, you know, it was really terrific. We really appreciate you coming over. And, you know, we think the show is going to do well and yada, yada, yada. And so I'm standing there through, well, I'll probably never see this guy again. Let me just take my shot. And I said, look, let's do a show. Let's do a series about this. And I started to, I gave him my 30 second pitch. And I said, let's do something about monsters that has never been done before in a TV show. Let's approach monsters. Let's approach the history of monsters as the history of the study of human hatred and fear. And I kind of, you know, explained we could do this, we could do that. And he listened. And when I was done, he said, you know, that is probably the best 30-second explanation I've ever heard of what the importance of cryptozoology is. And so for like a brief nanosecond, I'm thinking to myself, I did it. I, you know, <laughs> took this shot. And, they're gonna, and he says, but you know what? Even if, we, even if we made it, even if we filmed it, no network would ever show it. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's an issue that we, we have. You know, the, they know they can make – why has – you know, since everybody thinks this ancient alien show is so awful, which it is, why has it been on for – what's it been like 10 years? It's crazy. It's like, it's like the Simpsons of the History Channel. It's insane. You know, and why, why is that? Uh, they make up stuff, you know, it's all – and it's because the, 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 the producers know that if they put this on, people will tune in and watch. It's so – it's so disheartening almost to hear everyone in these fields has, has stories like that, and it sucks. Like we, we got – we were approached by – a company to at least like pitch an idea for a show. Right. And we were like, awesome. This is going to be great. And so we, we pitched something and the thing we pitched, we thought was really cool. And it was sort of, you know, we were talking about, well, let's, let's just do a show on kind of the development of the idea of the UFO. Right. So go back to like, tell the story of, you know, tell the story from the beginning, right, of, of or at least from the written beginning as, as we see it in the West of, you know, um, the nightmare and witchcraft and, and the witch's Sabbath and being taken from your bed then and all, you know, all that stuff, right? To show the science or the history, show all of it really from top to bottom and do it with experiments, right? Like do it with, you know, OK, so that's that's a cool idea, whatever. What can we do to show, you know, whatever, right? This is what ballistic motion looks like, something like that. And it was a little bit more concise and put together than what I'm explaining right now. But then the next like week it came back to us and they were like, well, this is what we thought of. That would be cool. And like, I'm not even kidding. It was world's deadliest police crashes or whatever. But for you, you know, it was like, it was like, you know, so we're going to get, we're going to get Giorgio Suclis and we're going to get, um, you know, Tanya Harding and we're going to get whoever and they're going to look at video surveillance. And they're going to be like, that's crazy. <laughs> it's like, that's no, that's not what we said at all. Like, how did you hear that? Yeah. Oh God. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's incredibly frustrating. You know, I, I, I know all these terrific archeologists out there, new world archeologists uh, who are driven crazy by this, you know, the pyramid built by aliens and, you know, <laughs> Templars in Minnesota and all this sort of garbage, and uh, which is a chapter in the book I'm working on. Um, 
But, you know, the, these are sharp people who, you know, know this material and can make it sound fast, you know, real history, real archaeology, real science. Right. And, and they, you know, the, 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 the production companies and the, and the channels won't run it because they don't think it'll make as much money as if they say, you know, this week we're going to show you how, uh, you know, Leif Erikson made it all the way to uh, Idaho. Uh, you know, and, and it's incredibly frustrating because, you know, like when I was a kid watching In Search Of, they made an effort to be accurate, to be factual. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about controversial stuff, but they tried to include, they, they tried to present it in a kind of rational way. Um, but, you know, a lot of these shows today, little kids are sitting there and they're not getting that rational aspect. They're getting the, the, the sensational stuff. Uh, and, you know, and so then they wind up in my class because they, you know, they, they, they see, like, for example, in the fall, I'm running my course on the history of alchemy. And it, it's great, you know, students are going to take the class and a, a number of them will go there because they want to talk about Harry Potter. And I'm happy to do that. But their experiences with this material has been on these kind of sensationalist shows. Right. So, you know, now I have to sit there and kind of talk them in off the ledge and explain, yes, well, that's not the, that's not, the case. that's not what the Philosopher's Stone was all about. It was something much more complicated, much more interesting, I think. Uh, and, you know, usually I, I, usually I can work it out, uh, but, you know, we, we, we wind up, you know, I, I know a number of people who around the country who teach courses on pseudoscience the way I do and, and, uh, and sort of fringe ideas. And they'll all tell, you know, uh, fringe archaeology. And they'll all tell you the first few weeks of the semester you have to spend, instead of delving in immediately into this really interesting stuff, you have to sort of talk them back, talk the students back away from this kind of sensationalist view that, you know, the, the, when, when you see on one of these shows where they say, well, <clears throat> the pyramids of Egypt and the pyramids of Mesoamerica and the pyramids of Southeast Asia and the pyramids of China, how could they, how could all these different people have built pyramids that look exactly alike when they had no connection? They must have had a, co- no, you know why? Because they didn't, they don't look exactly alike. Right. They're, <laughs> <laughs> and I, oh god no the um different purposes you know i uh last last year uh in in my in my uh worlds of history the freshman course we talk about ancient egypt because i know that's a hook i can bring them in sure and i'll start off i do this bit i do it every time and i say okay uh i'm gonna tell you now who built the pyramids of ancient egypt and I, I'm very dramatic, and I, and I, and I close the door to the, the classroom, and I say, I'm, I'm going to close the door because I don't want anyone to overhear this, because in the wrong hands, this information can be explosive. <laughs> and some of them, some of the students, you know, they're, they're adorable. They're sort of leaning forward because they think they're about to get this revelation. And I say, the... Uh, the pyramids of ancient Egypt were built by, and then, you know, dramatic pause, were built by the ancient Egyptians. <laughs> and then there's like this 
this brief pause where they're trying to, you know, make sense of what I just said because they're expecting <laughs> UFOs, lost races, giant. And, I, you know, and, and, and this sort of, oh, comes over the crowd. And, but then begin to explain to them, <coughs> excuse me, how the Egyptians did this. And the reason we know how the Egyptians built the pyramids is because they wrote it down. Right. <laughs> I always, oh God, I, the, I'm sure you've seen this and I'm sure you've sent it to people yourself. Even there's a video online of this guy in, and it was, it was from like a history channel documentary. Even I think this guy in Michigan, like building his own Stonehenge, Right. And he just uses like, he's like, I'm just using like three pieces of wood and he's just, you know, using levers and you know, like simple physics. Right. And he's like, just like you move a fridge, like you can't lift a fridge over your head, but you can walk a fridge across your floor. Oh my God. The, so it's a kind of anti-humanist. A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, that again, that, that these, that these ancient people, these, you know, these dark skinned, how did the, how did the people of Easter Island put these, uh, put these statues in place? Well, they figured it out. Right. They had nothing but time and nothing but people. Yeah. Like. Just as intelligent <laughs> as anybody else. They wanted to do this thing. Uh, and they sat down and they figured out how to do it. Right. Oh my goodness. Well, you know, it's, it's so funny. We're coming up here at the end of um, the end of our time here together today. But seriously, first off, you're making me desperately want to go back to school um, to take some of the courses you're talking about here. If you go online, if you go to my, my Kane university webpage, uh -huh. um, I have web pages for every one of my classes and on each web page is the syllabus, the readings, the the PowerPoint slideshow for that particular course. So anybody, you know, Kane is a is a state school. It's a public university, uh, and so all this stuff is available. You can just go on. You don't need a special password or anything. Uh, just Google my name, and and my Kane um, homepage will be the pretty much the first thing that comes up. And you can you can read all of my stuff. Uh, various op-ed pieces and, and books and articles and things. Uh, and you can go to my classes and you can look at what's going on in the classes. Oh my goodness. So you're, you're going to really be hitting my budget this month, I think, but I'm very excited about it because I'm a hundred percent. Well, I'm going to read those books though. I'm going to get the books. Like I'm going to, I'm going to get the books you suggest to get in your syllabus. Like that's going to happen. Um, oh my goodness. So exciting. Um, well, so last thing before before we close up here today, anything you want? So listeners, go check out the the site. Um, get those get those reading lists. Um, check out the books here um, from Doctor Regal. Um, again, that's Brian Regal. Um, anything else you want to leave people with? Any any kind of last thoughts? If you're in the audience listening to this right now, and you are interested in cryptozoology, if you're interested in UFOs, if you're interested in, in ghosts, God bless you, but go learn the history. Go take a science class. You know, take, if, you're, if you're a monster hunter, take a bait and you haven't done this, take a basic biology class, take a basic zoology class. If you are interested in Egyptian history and how the Egyptians built the pyramids, take a history class. Uh, uh, buy Get read some. Go to the library and read books on ancient uh, on ancient Egypt, on the Mesopotamians and the Babylonians and ancient India, uh, and and 
and find out the scholarship. It's all out there. Uh, it only requires you to be able to read. Uh, you know, any good uh, public library, go to your local college or university library and just do the work. Uh, and you'll find you'll have a much more satisfying experience by doing that. 100%. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, we are seriously uh, so thrilled to have you on here today. Folks, again, uh, this was the Mad Scientist Podcast. We'll be back again next week with another episode. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist Podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at MadScientistPod or at TeamGiantSquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. We love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.